Okay, so uh, thank you uh, for uh, for coming, those who who came. Um, so we are going to try and follow the style that we've been doing for the sitter, although not in as much uh, detail. But we're going to try and do that in terms of the Pesach Seder or the uh, the Haggadah. Uh, in other words, what we're going to try and do is we're going to try and lift ourselves out of the text out of line by line, paragraph by paragraph, and sort of look at the big picture of what exactly we're trying to accomplish over the course of the, uh, of the Seder. And then hopefully um, what will happen is, is we'll have a better understanding of the landscape that's passing us by as we go paragraph by paragraph, and we'll have a better appreciation of what exactly we are, uh, what are we, we are trying to accomplish. Um, one of the things which, uh, you know, obviously... Um, this is something which is a, 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 the annual challenge that we have, is to try and we imagine how a Seder is going to be this awesome, inspiring uh, experience, where everybody's going to walk out in mamish feeling like they, uh, they left our Sinai with great appreciation, and, uh, you know, I wake up in the morning, and the kids are already packed up and ready to go to Har Sinai. You know, something along those lines, we imagine that. And uh, mysteriously, every year, we, uh, we fall short of that, uh, that goal. And with all the different approaches and all the different things which, uh, which uh, you know, we try, um, somehow it comes out a little bit uh, less than, uh, than, uh, than, uh, than satisfying. And I thought it was a little bit of a siyata deshmaya. Uh, somebody sent me a quote today about parenting, but I think you could apply it to the Passover Seder as well, the Pesach Seder as well. I think it's the exact same sentiment. And the parenting thing is, uh, parenting is the easiest thing in the world to have an opinion about, but the hardest thing in the world to do. So I think if, in many ways, the Pesach Seder is the same type of thing that you get have all sorts of theories and approaches and things which you think other people should do or should carry out or should be done. But at the end of the day, when it comes to actually sitting down at the Pesach Seder, so get everybody attentive and paying attention and to stop fighting with each other and stop talking about politics and sports and entertainment and all those things. So that becomes quite a, uh, quite a mighty task. So uh, we should just sort of, uh, you know, acknowledge that, accept that at, at the outset. And then see what we can do if a, a better understanding of the big picture of what's going on will actually end up uh, uh, in, in enhancing the process. So what I want to focus on uh, tonight, <coughs> by and large, <coughs> is an interest in what I think is two things that I'm really going to draw your attention to. So the first one is, um, so my, my, my parents' neighbor in Eretz Yisrael so is a rabbi, one of his neighbors, they live in a, a big uh, uh, condo, but one of them is a rabbi, Shmuel Golden is his name, and he's put out a number of svarim on Chumash, and he put out uh, a Haggadah. Well, I, I happened to dive into the same minion in it as him, Shabbos morning, who was raining out, so I couldn't make it to the, uh, to the Kosel, and my father had said, I didn't know which building the minion was going to be in, so I called Rabbi Golden, and he was going to be waiting for me in the, in the lobby. So uh, in the lobby, so on the way there and on the way back, and then the hallway after diving, so he had a chance to, uh, to schmooze. And uh, I was very excited when he told me that the Haggadah that he did, uh, that he put out, was to try and see the big picture of what's going on. Again, to take himself out of the text itself and just try and observe what exactly is the flow. And I said, oh my gosh, it's the most unbelievable thing because we have this series which is going on in shul called GPS for the Sitter. And I didn't even have to explain what it is. He said, oh, that's exactly what it, you know, that's exactly what uh, this, uh, my Haggadah is designed to do. 
is to be able to see the, the overall structure of what's going on, what the starting point is, what the end point is, and what you should be able to observe and experience a, 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 along the way. So I spent a good part of that Shabbos morning, uh, you know, reading through various uh, sections of his Haggadah. It was more than you could do in a, in, in a single sitting. But uh, afterwards, after, after Shabbos, I didn't do this on Shabbos. So, so I asked him if I could go ahead and I could take, a, if you would mind, if I took a picture of one of his charts and use it in a shear. And he was more than gracious enough to, uh, to grant me permission. So that's what's actually on the, uh, on the, uh, on the page over here. So you see, and we're going to come back to this in a little bit, but you see he's already breaking it down in terms of different, don't look at the column all the way to the left, the one two to the left, you want the one to go uh, right before the page number, so column number three, it would be. So if you just look down over there, you see that he's breaking down based on paragraphs what exactly we're trying to accomplish with each section. So you see a big part of it, which is section number two, where the mouse is now, if you can see it, says a major digression consisting of a series of halachic asides quantifying the mitzvah of Sipri Yitzhiyus Mitzrayim. So that's very important to know, because a lot of that, that begins with, if I could pull that up, that begins with, do you, do you now have a Haggadah on the page? The, the screen switch? Yes. 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 Okay, great. So over here, so that really begins with... Um, in many ways, he begins over here with Maisa Rebelezer Rebbe Shua. So, beginning with this paragraph, so he already sees, and a lot of people say lots of Divrei Torah about it, the different Tanayim and who they were, and Kohanim and Leviim and Geirim and things like that. And all of these paragraphs, all the way here, um take us till about over here, till about the end of the paragraph of Vihishanda. So this is really a, what the, the way he frames it, the way he, he says it is, actually says that he goes till Yachom Rosh Chodesh. He says a little bit earlier. Yeah, till here. So he says, all the way until here, he, said, he, he, he frames this as a digression. That what really we're trying to do, and we'll talk about this over, over this week and next week probably, what we're trying to do is we're just trying to set up the parameters. We know that there's a mitzvah which we're going to be doing the night of the Seder, which is Sipur Yetzias Mitzrayim, is retelling the story of, of the Exodus. And before we actually get to the meat and potatoes of the story, the meat and potatoes of the meal, <laughs> but also the meat and potatoes of the story, so the first thing that the, the, the Baal Haggadah decides to do is to give us the framework of what exactly is involved in the mitzvah. So it's describing the details of the mitzvah, and that's something which is, is important to consider. But going back to his chart, uh, being that this, this takes up four or five, six paragraphs or something like that, so you should know, it's important to know that we're not actually answering any of the questions. The Manishtana, which is number two over here in the introductory passages, so there's two answers to that question. Number one is, Avarim Hayinu. And then in number three, So we have, th- those are two different answers, two different opinions in the Gemara, how we're supposed to answer the question as to why we have a Pesach Seder. And they're separated by what he refers to as this major digression, where we go into trying to understand what exactly is the, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the mitzvah itself. So if we cut all of that out and we just focus on the answers and whatnot, what, what we're trying to accomplish, so I think that will help us understand in, uh, in many ways the bigger picture of what's, uh, what's going on. So for this, we're going to go back to the, uh, 
to the Haggadah. And um, Rav Matasiro Solomon, he has a very nice, uh, a, a very nice idea, which I think is going to be very helpful for us to understand what the goal of the Seder is and what we're trying to accomplish. And as we said, hopefully from there, everything else will sort of fall into place in terms of, uh, of understanding. So he says, we have over the course of um, near the end of Magid, let's just say, towards the end of the Magid, so the introductory paragraph to Hallel says, this is what you should have on the screen there, So this, in many ways, is the goal of what we're trying to accomplish. The goal of the Pesach Seder, with all of the details and all of the rituals and all of the things which we, which we read about and we discuss, all of that is to create this circumstance, to create this mindset of a person seeing himself as if he left Mitzrayim. And then we quote a Pasuk. Okay. And then it says over here. So here's sentence number one, which is important. So we say, didn't only redeem our ancestors, but we also were redeemed together with them. So if I were to ask you a question now, in this sentence, who is the primary subject of those who were redeemed and who are sort of like the uh, the uh, the subordinates to who exactly was uh, was uh, was redeemed. So the language I won't wait for a show of hands, but the language is is that not only did you redeem our parents, but also we were also part of it. So it sounds like the primary people who are redeemed are our parents, and we are the children of that. Which in many ways is, if you think about it, that's really when you when you go back to the psukim related in the paragraphs related to the four sons. So the whole section of the Torah, which addresses the four sons, the whole purpose of that is to say that it's really addressing generation one and generation number two. Generation number one are those people who actually left Mitzrayim. And the Torah is talking to those people who left Mitzrayim. Your children who didn't have your experience, they're going to ask you about it. And you're going to have different type of children. They're going to have different type of perspectives when they ask you about your Exodus experience. And depending on who the child is, you're going to respond accordingly. So from the very outset, it seems to be that it's really our parents who left. We are the children of that generation. And that's what this first paragraph of Behold Over Door seems to capture. Then in the next paragraph, we say, Therefore, all of us have to go ahead and give thanks. And then we say... uh, so this line, which is now highlighted, when it says that the one who did for our ancestors and us all of these miracles, so here we no longer have a difference in terms of who is the redeemed. Now it seems to be somewhat equal. Obviously, you have to sequence things. You know, one, if there's more than one thing, so one has to come before the other. But not there's, not, there's no language here which indicates who is the primary redeemee and who is the subordinate to them, who's going to be the children of them, but you did these miracles for ancestors and us. So we're equal. Those are the people who are the recipients of the the miracles. So we transition from subordinates to now equals. Then from here, we read these first two paragraphs of Hallel, the beginning of Hallel, and then we go into the bracha. So we may be done with the Magid section in certain regards, but obviously we're not done with the Seder, right? Those people leave right after the meal, so they're missing the, uh, you know, the culmination of what is supposed to take place. But here what we have is 
the bracha is very significant because in the, the language of the bracha is Ashir Ga'alanu Ga'alanu Savasenu Mitzrayim. So in this sentence, who's put first? We come first. So we were redeemed together with our together with our ancestors. So we went from below, it was primarily our parents, and we're the children of them. Then we went to equals, and then it was as if we ourselves were the ones who were redeemed and our parents. So this is a major transition, which is taking place over the course of the Haggadah here. It's, it, it's, it's three out of six paragraphs or something, which are going to capture this idea. But this is something which captures the essence of really what we're trying to accomplish over the course of the Pesach Seder, in the sense of getting ourselves from beginning, thinking about Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim as something which happened to others, and we just happen to be beneficiaries of that, to becoming the ones who actually were redeemed ourselves. And that is, that's essentially what the Behold Dovador tells us is, Behold Dovador Chayv Adam says, that each person is supposed to see themselves as if they were the ones who went out of Mitzrayim. And it's a, it's a transitional thing. You can't just snap your fingers and suddenly imagine yourself as the one who left uh, Mitzrayim. It's something which is going to take some time, some effort, and it's going to take a number of steps along the way. And the steps, Kadesh, Urchatz, Karpas, Yachatz, all of those things which we do are all part of that transition to get ourselves from observers of an event which happened to somebody else and to actually put ourselves into the, into the, uh, to the story as if we ourselves went Mitzrayim and to have the same emotional reaction to what's going on as if we ourselves were those, uh, th- those people. So that's actually what we're, trying to, uh, what we're trying to accomplish. And there's a couple of very important pieces as far as how Chazal structured this and what exactly is going to be the methodology to, uh, to be able to, uh, to achieve this. So one of the, uh, the great Bali Musser was Rav Simcha Zissel of Kelm. He was uh, Rav Simcha Zissel, is, uh, is, how, is how he's uh, referred to. And so he went ahead and he said, he, he made an amazing observation, which in, many, in some ways connects Purim with Pesach, and a, a Purim-related idea with Pesach, but it's a very important idea in terms of understanding what all of the rituals of the Pesach Seder are all about. Because sometimes we think that's, that's usually um, one of the first things to go, is people know about the food, and people know about the songs, but in terms of some of the other rituals, so those are easily uh, dispensed with. So he says a very important idea. He says, the Gemara in Megillah says, in Yudal Ramanalaf, Gedola hasara satabas, yosir mimemchas nevim v'shevin avios, shenisnavnu lehem l'Yisrael that the act of Ahasuerus taking off his signet ring, giving it to Haman, so that Haman could go ahead and make whatever decrees he wants, giving him that level of authority, accomplished more. Gedola was greater, was more effective than the 48 male Nevi'im and the seven female Nevi'os, which, which exist in Klaiso. Because in what way was this act considered to be even greater than the collective accomplishment of all of the Nevi'im, because with all of the Musr, that the rabbis and the rabbitsons and the Nevi'im and the Nevi'os, with all of that which they said, so they weren't able to get Klai Yisrael to do tshuva. 
So it might have been very brilliant. It might have been very, you know, inspiring at the moment. And people said, wow, that was a great drasha. Wow, that was a great cheer. Wow, that was a great presentation. But at the end of the day, they got in their cars and they drove and they got themselves a double bacon cheeseburger on the way home. So ultimately, it did not accomplish its task. Vilu hasaras hatabas, but when it came to Achashverosh taking off his ring and giving it to Haman, hechzira lemutav. So that triggered a tremendous uh, Balchuva movement in Klai Yisrael. Because when Klai Yisrael were suddenly threatened, when the Nevi'im were getting up and warning them about what's going to happen if they don't do tshuva, they said, yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't something which was real to them because all they're hearing is drushas. And just listening to something and have it go into one's das, into one's brain, so that doesn't translate into action. So as much as that people may have been inspired by that, Ultimately, it never translated into action, and it certainly didn't translate into a change of behavior. And, but the, uh, but the Haman, Achashverosh and Haman, they were able to actually affect a change, a dramatic change, which continues to have a ripple effect even to this day. The idea that there was a new Matan Torah as a result of that. None of the other Nevi'im were able to accomplish something which is anywhere close to having a, another type of Matan Torah experience. And yet Achashverosh and Haman were able to go ahead and do that uh, with, uh, with a very, you know, seemingly very simple act, which they went ahead and they did. In Reb Simcha Zissel writes, he says, he says, we learn from here this idea from the Gemara, that the wiser a person is, the more wisdom that a person has, and certainly in the time of the Nevi'im, all of Kal Yisrael were great uh, scholars in Torah, knew, uh, knew a tremendous amount of Torah. With all of their Torah knowledge, the Chachma which they had, the wisdom, the Torah wisdom which they had, did not leave an indelible mark on them. It didn't leave a Rishima, it didn't leave a mark on them to change their behavior. In contrast to what they experienced, not in Chachma, not in their head, but what they experienced emotionally, what they experienced physically with their senses, that the fear which they, which they were gripped with, with their senses, that's something which is much more powerful. It's, much, it's a much different experience to think about something, to imagine something, and to actually have a physical experience of that thing. So if it could be translated into a physical thing, you could actually feel your heart pumping. You could feel your breath getting short. You could feel that knot in your stomach when that actually happens because the threat is something which is real, not just somebody telling you that there's a potential threat out there, but actually having the threat in front of you. So that's a much more powerful experience. So being that, experiencing something, having that somatic experience, or, or experiencing something in your senses, in your, in your breathing, in your heart, in your stomach, in your, uh, your being. So, so if a person is going to take these ideas, he happens to be talking about uh, reward and punishment and how that could potentially be a motivating thing, but usually we dismiss it. We say, oh, the reward which they tell me that's going to be for Ganeidin, it's just an imaginary thing. It's something which just exists in my head. And the threats which they have, which don't work anyways, but the threats which they have as far as Gehenim and how terrible that's going to be, that's also not going to ultimately be effective because it's something which exists in my imagination. And something which remains locked in my imagination, 
that's not going to be able to change me as an individual. It's not going to be able to affect the change on who I am, my behavior, and anything about the about my conduct. And therefore, in order to be able to experience something that in a way which is going to be meaningful, which is going to be impactful, it has to be something which is experienced with the senses themselves, and it's not something which can be presented just in terms of chachma, just in terms of imagination, and something which you're going to think about, which is a very powerful uh, uh, idea. And he goes on, uh, Rav Matasio goes on to quote, uh, um, I'm doing a, a blank on the name, but one of the one of the tells the Rosh Yeshiva. So he says um, uh, that really he's he's talking more specifically about the Pesach Seder, and he says that. Uh, so he says kulo So the whole Seder revolves around rituals. That's why it happens to be that in the middle of Magid, we go into the details of the mitzvah of Sipra Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, because if we're going to do all of this correctly, it has to be something which is experienced with the senses, and we need to know what exactly we're trying to experience. Uh, and all the rituals which we do are intended to give us a physical experience so that we can have that, that, that experiential thing of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. So one thing we do is we eat and we drink wine while reclining. Why do we do so? So now we have a physical experience of what it means, assuming that you enjoy uh, reclining, but you have a physical experience of what it means to be free. You're not just, you're not just thinking about being free. You actually do it with your body. You demonstrate freedom with your body. We eat more without reclining. Why? That's to serve as a reminder to have an experiential experience of what bitterness is like. It's not nowhere near the bitterness of, of, of actual slavery, but it's an experiential thing. Matzah. We eat matzah. That's to remind us in one regard, depends on which matzah it is, but that's to remind us of the poor man's bread. The, the, all that we can afford or the, all that we could get our hands on when we were enslaved in Mitzrayim. And that's the same of all the items on the Seder plate and all the different rituals which we do, all of them are uh, to go ahead and to remind ourselves, and not just remind ourselves, but to actually experience the emotions and what Klai Yisrael were, 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 were doing. And then he says an incredible, what I think is an incredibly powerful idea. He says, V'alo lefi dimyoneinu. In our imagination, so now imagine that those of us who are assembled here at the Shear, so we are members of the Anshe Knesset Hagdola, and we are going to go ahead and we are going to sit down at the committee meeting, responsible to go ahead and formulate what exactly the Pesach Seder is going to look like. So it's, it's our job to go ahead and make sure that everybody experiences Yitzhiya Mitzrayim generations after Obviously, there's nobody alive anymore from the who, who had that experience firsthand. So we have to try and somehow replicate that in a way which is you going to like be that. meaningful. So seemingly it will be more effective and it will be more inspiring. First of all, we're going to rent out the biggest hall in town and we're going to cater with the fanciest meal. 
Now, those who go away to hotels and whatnot, so that, that part is, uh, is not, is not going to work for you over there because you actually do that. But he says, you'd imagine that you go ahead and you're going to get the fanciest place. Uh, and there'll be singers who are singing Pesach-related songs, and then you'll have the most famous speakers, the most inspiring speakers, and they'll be giving drashas, and they'll be giving shiurim. And you know what would be even more inspiring? If they had an audio-visual, if they could add some visual to it so that you actually see with your own eyes on a screen. He wasn't talking about on a movie screen, but you could actually see with your own eyes what it, what it looks like to be slaves and what it looks like to be tortured and what it looks like. Well, there. And we should sit down and we should watch a movie that depicts with great accuracy what exactly the experience of Yitzhak Mitzrayim was. And he says... He, the, this tells Rashiva says in our days you actually could go ahead and this must have been probably the early part of the 20th century where they started to have movies so you can actually put such a thing on there so we could go ahead and we could get the best actors and the best screenwriters and the best uh, you know uh, musical accompaniment people and the best directors and all of the best uh, people to go ahead and put on a movie and everybody here has been has seen some television show or some movie where it was it was it was made so well that during the time that you're watching it you actually felt that you're part of the experience and you may have cried with them and during uh, tension filled times you may have fe- felt your heart pumping quickly you may have felt a knot in your stomach all the different things which you experience when a movie is put together well you, somebody could come along and they could go ahead and they could create such a thing so why didn't Chazal see that that would be the best way to go ahead and why didn't we, the members of Anshay Knesset Zagdola, who are part of the committee, putting together the Passover experience, the Pesach experience, why didn't they go ahead and set something up in that way to be able to listen to it and to think about it and to learn about it, that they have all of that? So he says that, he says that obviously the real Anshek Knesset Zagdola, not us, but the real Anshek Knesset Zagdola, they didn't set things up this way. They didn't structure it this way. Certainly, if you walked out of this very powerful uh, movie and this very powerful uh, visual, so you'd feel, you know, uh, you'd feel inspired and you'd feel uh, connected with the, uh, the the story. But he says, Habamina uh, Mishta, uh, uh, so you would, you would remember everything which you saw, and you'd be very interested in what took place, and you'd be overwhelmed with emotion. All that may, may very well happen if you put together a good, good movie. But if all you did was observe it as an observer, and you didn't become an active participant in the process, then it's not going to leave a lasting impression on you, something which is going to be able to affect a change in your behavior. So now go ahead and think again about those that uh, the television show or the movie that you saw that at the time that you're watching, it was something which was so inspiring and so moving. And so uh, uh, and, and, and it grabbed your entire emotion, your entire being at the time that you're watching it. And then a day later, what are you left with? So you're left with a memory. That's it. It didn't, it didn't change your behavior. It didn't do anything for you long term. It didn't affect uh, a, a change in outcome. 
And therefore, that's why Chazal understood that this is something which is not going to happen. If it's going to be just a bunch of shurim and a bunch of lecturers and a bunch of inspiring speakers, as much as in the moment you'll enjoy it and you may uh, even feel inspired, it's not something which is going to be able to, uh, to, to, to leave a lasting impression. And to make sure that we actually have, that we walk away with the lasting impression, so it's not just the storytelling part of it, but there also has to be all of the rituals. The rituals become an essential part of the, the storytelling process because it's through those physical things that we can actually experience it of, like you have highlighted on the screen here, that Liros Because if something remains just in the Das, it's just Chachma, or it's just Das, it's just wisdom or knowledge which a person has, but it doesn't become Bina, Bina meaning understanding, which, which is experiential, something which you're going to have in your heart, so then it's just a, it's just a history lesson. And obviously the, uh, the, the intent of the Pesach Seder, the intent of HaKadosh Baruch Hu telling us to do these things was not to convey history. Some people, they want to go ahead and they want to make sure that if somebody doesn't forget, so you just have to keep telling over the history again and again and again. But history, the history is only going to go so far. It has to be something which is experiential, and only then will you be able to go ahead and make that transition, and hopefully for it to become uh, something which is, uh, which is real. So that's what we're trying to accomplish over the course, not only of the Magid section, because the Magid section focuses very much on the story part of the, uh, the story part of it, but the rituals themselves are something which are also play a vital role. And in some ways, they're an even more vital role to the telling of the story than what we say over during, uh, what we say over during Magid. So that's just in terms of the overall uh, structure and the overall picture of what we're trying to accomplish. So from beginning to end, from Kadesh all the way until the end, so this is what we are trying to uh, what we are trying to uh, to accomplish, and that's why uh, uh, the meal is an essential part of it. So we think is the meal is just you know you got to reward everybody for sitting so patiently and so quietly during the maggot section. So you got to give them some sort of food. You can't have uh, you know a bunch of Jews over at your house without feeding them uh, some uh, some good food. But the truth is is that the meal is part of the celebration. We don't do this because we're not uh, accustomed to that. So it's something, and it's something which would be awkward. It would actually ruin the meal if we were to do so. But if you look in the poskim, so the poskim actually say that the entire meal should be consumed while doing heseba, while reclining. Because, once again, reclining was something which, nowadays what we would say is, what they, if Chazal were, were putting this in place now, they would say, when you drink your four cups of wine, if you can see my, my, uh, my cup of tea over here, I'm going to undo the... Uh, the screen share, sorry. So what they, would, what they would have you do is, they would say, everybody make sure that when you drink your cup of wine, your pinky's out. So they would go ahead and say, that's a way to go ahead and show real cheiras, because that's the way fancy people, like Fancy Nancy, for those who have, <laughs> have seen that book. So that's the way that fancy people go ahead and drink their drinks with their pinky out. So Chazal would say, make sure that your pinky's out when you're drinking, and then we'd have a shayla. Does it have to be out of tefach? It has to be out half a tefach, one but We'd have all sorts of shurim about how far your pinky has to be out in order to be yotze, the mitzvahs, I wrote it. So it has to, how far it has to be out, and do I need to do it with my right hand, my left hand? So we'd have all sorts of things of that, but that would be, that's our modern version of doing something which demonstrates cheirus, because the fancy people, the wealthy people, go ahead and do that. So in Chazal's time, the translation of that was reclining on some sort of couch. 
So for us to go ahead and recline, if you're trying to have soup reclining, so you'll uh, spill all over yourself. So it's not going to make for a very good thing. But the point was that the entire meal should be eaten with a sense of royalty, a sense of I'm not a slave to anybody else. And this is, this is the middle of the celebration. I reached myself to the point where I actually left Mitzrayim. Now that I'm a free person, I'm going to enjoy this sumptuous meal and I'm going to eat it while reclining and I'm not in any rush, forget about chatzos, and I'm not going anywhere and I've got nothing to do and nobody's telling me who, what, when, where, and why. And I could just enjoy the experience itself. And then after that meal, when you're feeling full, then we move on to the rest of Halal. So we're not done yet. Right, every other Shabbos in Yontif, as soon as the suit is over, as soon as we're done benching, so then everybody scatters and they go their own way. Or maybe their family plays a game together or something like that. But everybody goes about their, their business here after Barech, so we still have other stuff to do. We have Halal and Yirza. We still have to do because that's all part of this overall experience which we're trying to generate for ourselves that we should be able to feel is if we left Mitzrayim. And the truth is, this is also something which is not uh, practiced uh, v- very much. Uh, even the post game already begin to scale it down. But there was a practice which used to be that after the Pesach Seder was over, that people would remain engaged either in storytelling or in reviewing the halachas of, of the Korban Pesach and Pesach itself all the way until morning. So that story that we have in the Haggadah about the Tanaim who are sitting there, Mesubim B'Nebrach, and they were talking about time all night long until their students came in and said, no, no, Rabosa, it's time for Shachris, or whatever respectful way they went ahead and they told them that it's uh, that Yigiyaz Man Kriyash Mashal Shachris. So that's not something which was so out of the box and something which is so crazy, because imagine if you were, you had grown up in slavery, everything about you was slavery, 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 and you finally are freed from the Egyptians, and you're now celebrating the fact that you're freedom. Can you imagine going to sleep that night? There's no way you'd be able to fall asleep because you're so filled with emotion and so filled with excitement and so filled with um, uh, um, um, joy and happiness that there's no way you'd be able to fall asleep. You'd be wired for, for days and days and days. So that's really what's supposed to take place. For most of us, if we try to do that, we're forcing ourselves to stay awake and then we end up sleeping through chakras and it's not going to be a, a, a very a, a effective thing. But the truth is, is that in the, in the ideal setting, that would just happen naturally because you'd be so excited by, ha- by having that experience that it would just generate all of that adrenaline and all of that, uh, that, uh, that strong emotion, which would make it impossible to go ahead and, uh, and, and fall asleep. So this is the overall picture of what exactly it is that we're trying to, uh, to, to, uh, to accomplish. Now, let's get ourselves started a little bit in terms of what the, uh, the sequence of, what, uh, of what's taking place over the course of the, uh, uh, of the Seder. So as we know, and we'll do uh, maybe five, 10 minutes of this, uh, depending on uh, where we find ourselves in five or 10 minutes. So we begin with Kaddish. So Kaddish, as we know, so this is going to be regular Kiddish. Uh, what exactly we say is not something which, which is so important. But what we're, we're starting off with over here is we're, at the very outset, we're making a declaration, right? One of the, the essential commandments of the Torah, not that you would say that one mitzvah is more essential than another, but one of the commandments which is more a, which captures more of a philosophy than necessarily a particular behavior is Kedoshim Tiyu is this idea to be separate, to be set apart, to be, uh, to be designated 
for some higher purpose. And this is what we are trying to what we are trying to uh, to do. Very often, when people find themselves uh, in a rut, and people find themselves sort of uh, uh, directionless, and find themselves without uh, knowing which way to go and what to do, it's because they don't feel that they're connected to a higher purpose. They don't feel that there's something bigger than themselves that they're connected to, and they don't feel that there's that that uh, that connection that they have to something bigger than themselves is a motivating factor, is an inspiring factor in their in their lives, and that's why in uh, many societies, and used to have it here now. Uh, you know, with the, the internet, people don't feel the need to, uh, to do that anymore. But that's why there used to be all sorts of, um, you know, the sisterhood of the shoal or this club or that club or the Kiwanis club and the Mushar club and all the different clubs which people were, were a part of. Everybody was affiliated with some sort of group which is bigger than themselves. And this is a, a strong human motivation that we have is to connect with something. It's, it's a drive which everybody has, because that, that, that's expressive of the neshama that we have inside of us. And the neshama which ha- we have inside of us, it's like a magnet. It's always searching for something which is bigger than itself. We have this intuitive understanding that there's something greater than me as an individual. And therefore, we spend our lives searching for, uh, for that type of thing. Sometimes, you know, that's, uh, you know, people will travel to, to India. They'll think that they, uh, you know, meditating on a mountain somewhere is a way that they're going to connect to something which is bigger than themselves. We go running all over the place, trying to find some way to connect to something bigger. And the truth is, at the end of the day, that it's, it's within us. We don't really need to search for anything outside of us. It's within us. And it's our connection to a Torah Baruch Hu. And I don't need external things to go ahead and do that. Ultimately, it's something which, uh, which, which is supposed to come at the, uh, at the beginning. So we frame the beginning of, of the Seder. We go ahead and we say the first most fundamental element of a Jew is Kaddish is we are holy. Holy means that we're separate from all of the, uh, the mundane elements of, of life. And our goal and our purpose is to connect to a higher source, is to connect to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Kedoshim to you, Ki Kadosh, because Hashem is Kadosh. So we become holy because Hashem is holy, and that's the connection which is going to bind us together. And that's what gives our life meaning and purpose. And ultimately, we're aware of the meaning and the purpose of our lives as an individual, as well as a nation, comes from Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. That doesn't come from Isabratius. It doesn't come from creation. Creation is a different type of relationship that we have with, with, with HaGadosh Baruch Hu, but the part of the relationship that we have with HaGadosh Baruch Hu, which gives meaning and purpose to, uh, to our existence, that is the Kedusha, which comes from Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. So Pesach is where everything is going to, uh, is going to stem from. So we start off with that. Then from there, we go, Urchatz and Karpas go to, uh, together. So uh, ultimately, we're, we're trying to accomplish a couple of different things at the same time. Urchatz is that this is part of our Tahara. It's part of the Kedusha. It's part of the Tahara. And for um, time's sake, we're, uh, we'll, we'll use those uh, terms uh, interchangeably, even though they're, they're actually fundamentally different uh, concepts. But normally what we do is that we are not, um, uh, um, uh, like uh, uh, the, the Gemara has said, that humans are, the Gemara Chagiga said, that humans are sort of like a blend between animals and angels. So we have some characteristics which are very animalistic, very animal-like, and then there's other features of humans which is very angelic. 
and we are sort of like a bridge between those two different as we categorize things in the universe. So there's angels which are above us, there are animals which are below us, and everything which finds itself between two different categories is going to be a blend of those two categories. So humans are a blend of human, a blend of animal, and a blend of angelic. And what we try to do over the course of our lives is we try and elevate our, 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 our physical existence, which is the more animalistic side of ourselves. We try and elevate that and make that more spiritual. That's one of the things, that's the phrase, which I always uh, tell you guys, that the purpose of life is to sanctify the mundane. So much, much of our lives, 80%, 85%, 90% of our lives involves engaging in mundane activities and if you just let them remain mundane activities, so that means the greater part of your life is spent doing nothing, uh, accomplishing nothing spiritually. So why would HaKadosh Baruch Hu create a world in which the overwhelming uh, uh, amount of time of our lives is spent engaged in something which is non-spiritual, and it's just mundane things which you have to do in order to be able to exist? And the answer is he didn't create the world that way. He created it in a way where we're going to elevate our mundane existence by infusing spirituality and seeing everything as an opportunity to connect with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So one of the ways that we do that is, is we don't just jump into food. When food presents, when food is served to us, we don't just dive into the food and just grab it and shove it into our mouths. There's a process. You have to do so, and you have to follow ritual, and you have to elevate the eating process, which in some ways is the most animalistic side of our existence, which is eating. Maybe procreating is, is, is more. But eating is something which is one of the most animalistic parts of our existence. And we elevate that not only by saying a bracha beforehand, acknowledging that this food comes from HaKadosh Baruch but specifically at the Pesach Seder, even though it's a machlokas about it, in the rest of the year, we don't wash our hands in advance. At the Pesach Seder, we go out of our way to demonstrate we're a holy, sacred people. And even before we go ahead and we touch our foods, we're going to sanctify our hands as if our hands are now going to be involved in some sort of sacred activity. And the sacred activity that our hands are going to be involved in is feeding us giving us food to eat. So we're now beginning to demonstrate it's not only this, this uh, mysterious thing that we think about, that I'm a holy person or that we're a holy nation or connected with God. The first thing that we do after that is we demonstrate that, just like in the Beis Hamikdash, the Kohen is not allowed to do avoda without first washing his hands, hands and feet, but he has to wash before he goes and engages in any sort of avoda. And if he does not wash his hands, a coin who doesn't wash his hands before doing the avoda defiles that avoda. He invalidates the avoda because it's a, it's a necessary prerequisite. So in the same way, we wash our hands at the beginning to acknowledge and to make a declaration and to make it clear to everybody what we're doing is a sacred activity. We're not simply eating. We're engaging in a spiritual activity. And just like the bringing of korbanos necessitates washing hands, the eating of this karpas, this small little vegetable which we're going to eat, is a sacred activity, and therefore we have to wash our hands before we go ahead and, uh, and, and we do so. And then we actually get to the karpas itself, and when, then with this we'll, uh, we'll finish, but the karpas is the vegetable that, that, that we eat. It's done primarily, there's many different angles which we, could, uh, which we could take about the karpas, but it's done primarily to generate interest on the part of the children. Because assuming that children don't go to day school and they don't know what's, uh, what's coming, so they would find it to be very strange that there's a whole plate of food which is out there, which we call the Seder plate. So you got some meat on there, you've got some salad on there, you've got all sorts of things on there. And what we're going to do is 
we're going to go ahead and we're just going to have this small little vegetable and you don't even get enough, which is really part of an appetizer. As much as when you go to a fancy restaurant, they give you small portions. Nobody gives you a smaller portion than less of a kazais. So again, this small little, uh, this small little thing over here. And the purpose of that is to get the kids into the proper mindset, proper frame of mind, where they will feel comfortable asking questions. And they'll be able to point out, hey, we don't do this the rest of the year. So what's special about tonight that we're having this, uh, you know, whatever it happens to, uh, to, to, to be, whatever the, the carpas is. But it's something which is designed to get them in, into, into question mode. We dip it into the salt water as a way of experiencing for the first time a little bit of the, uh, a little bit of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the bitter part of the experience of Yitzhiya Mitzrayim. The bitter part of our the bitter part of our experience in Mitzrayim, where we had those tears, we're shedding tears all the time because we're so tortured and we're so pained, and we uh, in, in life was uh, was was so so difficult, and we saw life as having almost no meaning, and we started at the outset. We have to start all the way at the bottom. In the middle of the tears, in the middle of the crying, if there was going to be that opening scene in the movie, what you'd have to do is you'd have to have an opening scene with families just crying and crying and crying over their uh, over their circumstance and the lack of hope that there's no way they're going to be able to uh, go ahead and get themselves uh, out, out of that. So Karpas becomes the first step in experiencing the pain and the bitterness of Mitzrayim. And then as we move through the steps, as you're going to see, it's just like we talked about in davening. That's going to be a ladder which takes us higher and higher and higher till eventually we get to that highest, uh, that highest point, which is, the, which is the end of the Seder. But this is the overall structure which we are, which we are trying to, uh, to, uh, to achieve, to be able to feel experientially as if we left Mitzrayim. And steps one and two, Kade, uh, steps one, two, and three, Kadesh, Urchatz, and Karpas, those are the, uh, the first three steps which we take. And Ritz Hashem, next week, we will pick it up with, uh, with the Yachatz. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. All, right. All the best, everybody. Thank you. You too.